Hi, friend. Welcome to episode 46 of Sally's Performing Arts Lab podcast. Chris O'Rourke, playwright, director, Irishman, and critic, joins me from Dublin, Ireland, on this episode of Sally Pal. Sally Powell podcast host, Sally Adams. I talk to people about creating original work for a live audience. Send an email anytime to sally at sallypal.com. Before I share the interview, I want to do a little update on the copyright information I shared in the last episode when I told you all copyrighted material from 1923 would be entering the public domain this year after a 20-year wait for federal term extensions. That actually happened at the stroke of midnight on January 1st, 2019. Today, January 10th, 2019, I heard an episode of the radio show 1A with host Joshua Johnson on WAMU. The show is on a lot of NPR stations as well as on the internet. Husband and wife copyright experts James Boyle and Jennifer Jenkins spend an enlightening hour reviewing what the copyright laws mean for creative people. I highly recommend checking out Joshua Johnson's January 10th episode of 1A concerning copyright law. I think it will clarify a lot of what we face as creators in the digital age, from fair use to creative commons. They also discuss tools available to resolve the plagiarizing of protected works. Links are included in both the Sally Pal blog and the show notes. Knowledge is power. Chris O'Rourke is a playwright, director, drama coach, and critic currently living in Dublin, Ireland. Until July 2016, Chris was the national theater critic for Examiner.com. He now reviews performances for the Arts Review. I think Chris has reviewed nearly every live play in Ireland. I get his reviews in my email box every week and read them not just because I'm interested in the Irish theater scene. I wouldn't be if it wasn't for Chris. I read his reviews on theartsreview.com because they are a masterclass in what makes a live show worth seeing. Anyone producing live theater needs to read Chris's insightful and intelligent journalism. You can do that by visiting the website, Chris Reviews and Writes for theartsreview.com. Check it out. Chris O'Rourke is also the artistic director of the award-winning Everything is Liminal and Unknown Theater Troops, which specialize in originating works with young people from high-risk backgrounds. Unknown Theater's groundbreaking production, If Walls Could Talk, played at the 2017 Edinburgh Fringe Festival to rave reviews. I hope you'll check out the Sally Pal blog and show notes where you'll find links to things we talked about during the interview. I know you'll enjoy episode 46 with Chris O'Rourke. Be sure and listen until the end of the interview for concise advice from the interview and words of wisdom from George. Let's get started. Chris O'Rourke, welcome to Sally Bell. Thank you. Thank you for being here. It's great to hear your voice and your beautiful Irish accent. Well, if I speak too fast, because we have a tendency 
Don't hesitate to tell me to slow down. All right. You actually lived in the United States, which is where we met in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah, I'm, I'm based in Dublin now. I was in Tulsa in 2010 to 2011, and then I was in Edinburgh on and off for about a year, and I've been in Dublin ever since. Do people at home ever make fun of your American accent? No, I never really adopted the American accent. I, I adopted some little mannerisms. You know, like one of the things I picked up a lot in Tulsa, people go, mm-hmm. That's not something people do generally in Ireland. But, but, but the Irish accent is very particular and strong when you're surrounded by it every day, I suppose. Uh, we would have people who would go to live in the UK quite a lot. And they, they, they can do that dialect shifting where they're talking to me, it's very Dublin, and the phone would ring and they go, you know, so we're all talking, yeah, oh, how you doing, mate? You all right? You're okay? Brilliant. <laughs> all right, talk to that, love. Put it down. And then they're back talking in their Dublin accent again. So it's a very fluid thing, I think, these days. You must hang out with actors because that's the kind of code switching thing that actors do. I do, yes. I would, I would have... I've got two kind of remits here at the moment. One is as a theatre critic, and the other is as I was an artistic director. Well, sorry, I'm artistic director. I'm taking a sabbatical this year for a couple of ventures. Mm-hmm. Um, so in both cases, I would yeah, you would work with actors. You would be hanging around with an awful lot of people. It's a very it's a very healthy, it's a very vibrant community in Dublin. So, yeah. This show, we talk a lot about creating new work for the stage. And I know you work with group Everything is Liminal. And I'd like to know more about working with youth, because I think youth can be some of the best resources for creating new ways of expressing stories. And then I also do want to talk about your criticism, because it is just wonderful to read. You're such a dynamic writer. It's the kind of criticism that I get frustrated that we don't see enough of because you do suss out the parts that really work and highlight those, but you don't cut people a lot of slack, which is good too, because you want to be able to be true. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, we can come back to the criticism whenever you like. I think with that, it is a case that you're, you're always mindful that there's at least two readers, there's the, there's the company and there's the audience, and no company puts on a show to fail. But, like the show I just reviewed last night, wonderfully well-intentioned, but some things just didn't work. So, you're doing them a great disservice if you don't say, look guys, this is what you might need to look at because it didn't really land the way you thought it was going to land. Now, if you do it in that spirit, and I have reviewed people who I would go for a drink with the next day, and I've, I've had to say, that didn't work, then that's absolutely fine. Once there's, an, there's no necessary vindictiveness or viciousness to it, then they will respond and go, yeah, absolutely, I take what you say. I may not agree with it, but I understand why you're thinking that way, and I understand the rationale behind it. They will engage with you. And the same with the audience. I mean particularly in the climate where we're not all flush with money all the time and we have only so much time to be going out mm. so if you want to know should I go to this show should I give my money and my time over the scene this production when there's another production of the road that might be well worth my investment I come from a background of working with kids. I worked with fourth grade, which is probably around nine or ten years old, all the way through 18-year-olds. And that sounds like it's close to the age range you work with. So my my working with with, with young people has developed over the past six or seven years. And how it began was everything in Liminal was set up because while I'm I'm fascinated to see new works in the theatre, I'm also interested in new ways of making theatre. So everything in Liminal originally started out as a way to create this piece of theatre that met performance art around one woman's story about having had gastric band surgery. So part of that process, we set about trying to create this. I wanted to create something very visceral and immediate. And the work we had at the end had a huge impact on the audience. But working with Michelle, who was also performing it, was really a revelation because our way of working was very different to 
the American way of working. So the American way can be very psychological, it can be very Meisner, Stanislavski, in your head, figure it out, what's my motivation? And for us, sometimes we don't need to do it that way. Sometimes it's from the outside in. But back in Dublin, another part of the work I did was doing at the same time was working with high-risk early school leavers. So the best way I can describe this would be these would be kids who come from violent backgrounds, abuse backgrounds, background with just drugs and crime. And in, in their lives, there's a, not a lot of empowerment. And their stories don't really get articulated or heard. And theatre, particularly for the men in that culture, is seen as something that we don't want any part of. What intrigued me with that was, is there a way I can get these kids who have never been to a theatre, never been to a play, to produce something that allows them to tell their own story in their own way, in a way that if you walked in on a Friday night into a theatre in town and paid your, you know, your 10 or 15 quid, you'd go, you know what, that was worth it. I really enjoy that. So we began this process of um, working with Device Theatre, where we would come in, we would sit around, we'd talk, we'd joke, we'd have a laugh, we'd play games. I always told them they wouldn't have to act. They'd never have to act. But just come in and see what they thought of it. And they'd come in and we'd do something. And then I'd go, like, well, I'll tell you what, we do a bit of forum theatre, for example. Someone would talk about something that happened the weekend. So I'd say, so how would you handle that? Or would I have told them this, that, and the other? Well, I'll tell you what, it's just, 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 just my, show me how you did it. And then they go up and they show you what they would have done or what they did. And then they go, see, guys, you were actually acting. You tricked them. <laughs> yeah, and they go, actually, you know what I was? I wasn't bad either. So the confidence began to grow. And from there, we did, the first show we did was called Streets and Stories. And it was just a compilation of scenes dealing with everything from homelessness to a young mother who's pregnant at 17 and suffering postnatal depression or postpartum depression who, who doesn't know what to do to three girls getting dressed up for a night out from the town. Sounds like um, it's very relevant for them. Yeah. But when we had done that, what was interesting is they came back and said, OK, we want to do a play. Now, doing a play with these children whose lives are so unstable and the commitment requires to say, see, if you do it as a series of scenes, say you and me have got a scene and you don't turn up, we drop your scene, but the others are intact and we still have a show. But to get these kids to commit to a play or want to commit to a play was the big one. Um, and we did that and the show was called It Was Good Talk and we did that about two, two, three years ago. And that was a huge success. One of the lead actresses won the Olympia Star Rising Star Award. We had two other people taking them to Dublin Youth Theatre. People got paid, commercial work out of it. We toured all over Ireland and we ended up taking the show to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival uh, two years ago. For a group of kids who had never been in a theatre, to take that journey was amazing. But what was interesting was the community took that journey with them. Their family took that journey with them. Their most nervous night wasn't opening in Edinburgh. It wasn't even the opening night in town. It wasn't when we had some very well-known people come to see the show. It was when we took the show for one night into the community where their friends and their family came to see it. And it was really interesting because they had no conception of how theatre worked. Like they just walked into the door and walked in. They didn't think they had to pay. So we, we just left them. What was important was they turned up. And, you know, they applauded in the middle or, you know, whatever it might have been. But... You could see something was happening. And out of that, a whole series of other programs and projects has materialised because people went, that was really good. We want to see our kids do more of that. So for me, there was two things with that. There was the new stories you wanted to tell, which involved people whose voices aren't ordinarily heard, but also a way of making theatre that honoured that and embraced that and empowered that. Not just new stories, but 
new ways of telling stories. That second project to separate it from everything is liminal was called Unknown Theatre. Unknown Theatre, yes. Okay, I read that as well. As you're doing this, are you making them aware that they're becoming playwrights? Absolutely. They're, they are very much aware that, you know, part of the process is a peer learning process where we will do, whether it's the writing, whether it's directing, whether it's the casting, whether it's the set, it's very much, you know, I'm like, oh, hey, Sally, come here for a second. Okay, I want you to watch what Zoe's doing. Okay, tell me what you think. And then she'll come back and go, you know, I didn't think absolutely you're right, so how would you say that to her? And then they would have these open discussions. So by the end, I didn't have to do that anymore. It was just assumed when we did a scene that they could have these open dialogues and kind of go, you know, so I told you we're really trying a bit, whatever, and then they would get into the conversation. Right. And, um, and they were very smart observations, very uh, insightful observations, but you're absolutely right. It was really about them having the ownership of it and them having the power of it to come back and be able to articulate and then hopefully go forward and shape more works into the future. You know, Chris, that's so amazing. I actually did a whole show on receiving criticism and I wonder, because of the population that you're working with, how did you work with them to understand how to receive criticism and actually turn it into a positive thing? The one thing about it is is it takes time. Mm -hmm. There isn't a sort of, let's go in and do this exercise and there you have it. So a large part of our process, and I have a couple of people working with me, and I have to mention Lily Heller. Lily, is, she's an arts teacher. She's absolutely amazing. But the kids love Lily. And, you know, everybody loves Lily. It's just, you know, she's just one of these people. But she makes everybody feel safe. When you're working with kids like this, it's crucial to create a safe space. Now, received wisdom, though, is that once you create a safe space, these kids will respond. No, they won't. (laughs) When you create a safe space, the first thing these kids are going to do is test it. Because everybody who told them they were safe before, the places often like home that they should feel the safest, or school, but very often the places where the people who are most dangerous to them lived or where they felt most in danger. So when you come in and say, hey, I'll make you safe, they're going to go, really? Am I going to be safe if I do this? Am I going to be safe if I do that? So you have a period where you kind of go, you know what? There's no need to do that. You know, I'm not going to throw you out or I'm not going to get rid of you, but what do you think of doing that? And you work through it until they get to a stage where they feel safe. Once that happens, then the guards start to drop and then they revert to being three-year-olds. They get to be the kids they never got to be. And then you have a period where you kind of go, okay, grand, okay, run off wild, but, you know, come on back in, we've work to do. And then they start to take a peek at you and then maybe another peek and pop on over and, and do a little work. Once you've got to that stage, then they trust you, you trust them, and they trust one another. And then the dialogues can start. But again, it has to be very, very careful. So it will be things like, okay, so what happened up there, right? Let me know. Everybody, I'm going to start with you. I'm going to go through everybody. So everybody knows they're going to say, what did you see? And they'll all tell you. And if not, then you might, well, did anybody think it wasn't as good maybe as it could have been? And somebody goes, well, yeah, I thought, like, I mean, what he did last week was brilliant, you know? And it depends how you position the criticism and how you engage them. But once they realise that I can say these things and you're not going to hate me and you're not going to punish me and that actually what I'm saying matters because what I'm telling you, you're taking on board and you're thinking about it. And as a matter of fact, if I'm actually good or you're coming back next week and people are kind of going, will you have a look at me doing this? Then they start to unconsciously feel empowered and own it. Mm-hmm. But as you, you know, as I said at the beginning, it is a process. 
I'm going to just take time. It sounds like the most amazing pilot program for kids in difficult circumstances. It is, yeah, it, but it's exhausting. I, I can hear it, but it, it takes somebody with the patience of Job, I would think, to be able to pull that off. I say the patience of Job, but it's it's um, the best way I can describe it. I always feel the best theater is what I call the Columbus factor. You know, you, you, when people come to making something, it's like Christopher Columbus sitting on the Portuguese coast going, you know what? Everybody's telling me the world's flat, but I'm pretty certain if I go that way, now all I need is a few lunatics to get on the boat with me. You may not get all the way back, but what you find might be way more fascinating. But you will have those two or three months in the middle of the ocean where you kind of go, did I do the right thing? But it is about kind of constantly moving forward. And if you have the right people around you, and I was really fortunate, I said, with the likes of Lily being there, that I was able to keep it going. Right. And there'll probably be a time when you pass it on and go create this somewhere else. A couple of other bits and pieces I'm, I'm looking at. I took a sabbatical off. And, yeah, I mean, w- what the future of that is, I don't quite know. What I do know is, I mean, there's a lot of great youth organizations here. A lot of people doing fantastic work. Do you see your students from the earliest times of doing Unknown Theatre? do, yeah. A, the, 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 I, I got the best hug ever from one of the kids I bumped into in town just before Christmas. I hadn't seen her in a matter of months. But she... Uh, there is a bond that was really interesting like three of the girls four of the girls maybe came in one day after the show after one of the rehearsals and they all got tattoos drama masks and I would have got one I think I don't actually have tattoos I probably would have got one so there is that bond that when we yeah. do see each other you know we do remember and uh, yeah there's a, there's a huge closeness there with that you're talking about kids who probably never even thought about live theatre barely knew what it was and now they're tattooing themselves with an identifier that says I'm into live theatre exactly and, and they love that they love the as you said it's the live part of it It's that's what they love most I talk a lot a lot about that's what my show about creating work for a live audience and that connection you make with your audience I know Sondheim said it I'm sure others have that the audience is your final collaborator the live audience does have an impact on the show how do you find that affects the people you work with in terms of adding that final component I'm, I'm thinking like you know you know, from a critical hat as well you see so many works that don't necessarily want to have that direct engagement with the audience they want the audience to spectate the audience wants the audience to be immersed I saw piece last week by Anu here which is an immersive piece which completely engages you and it was absolutely mesmerizing but in general when you're you're doing something that's not as experimental I think that you know we would very much be of the mind that when we're doing the show we're doing it for ourselves because the minute I think I understand you as an audience and exactly how I'm going to move you, I think I've lost. I need to respect you as an audience member. I need to be cognizant of keeping you engaged and entertained and, you know, keeping you, you there. But I can't count on you responding the way I would want you to respond every time. And I can't count on you turning up tomorrow night. And I can't count on putting on a show in a 200-seater theatre with 20 people, not being what I'm going to have to do for the next three weeks. And people looking at that show and going... I'm not really interested in this. <laughs> and that happens. When the audience come in and they get the show, it gives the cast something that they didn't previously have that just ignites and the whole thing becomes this. You know, those nights of theatres you will never forget. And I'm thinking we, you know, the girl I was saying gave me the hug, uh, Tasha, she did one night was in Monaghan. And it was, her, it was her first time to come on stage and she did the monologue about a mother who nearly killed her son because she was 17 and didn't know how to deal with it by accidentally shaking him. But when she was doing the show, she had her breakthrough on stage and she started to cry. But, you know, we told her, next line, just do the next line and then the next line. You know, we gave her the support she needed to find her way through that. 
and she found a way and did it. Now, at the end, she got a spontaneous round of applause in the middle of the show because the audience connected. Now, we couldn't legislate for that. We couldn't create that happen. But we know we have something that, if the conditions are right, that can happen. But if the conditions are wrong, or people aren't as engaged, or people don't turn up, or you've just had a bad day, then you still need to be able to produce the work in a way that, you know, we're going to walk away at the end and go, you know what, we did the best we could. We put on the best show we had, and if people didn't appreciate it or didn't like it as much, well, you know what, if we can honestly look at ourselves and say, the stuff we need to learn here, then let's take that on board. But if we're kind of going, you know, no, I would still do the same show tomorrow the same way. But then maybe it was just one of those nights. So you've had the experience as a critic of seeing a show, then you walk out and you keep thinking about it for days afterward. And you know, it impacts you later. Think about that. You see, for me, I'm, I'm one of those critics that when I go to a show, and I would probably see in the region of 250 shows or more a year. Mm-hmm. Wow. For me, when I go into a show, there's a point where I'll just read the program, get a few bits, put it away, and then I kind of, it's almost like a meditation exercise, you know, mm-hmm. I just ground myself. I'm here. And I'm not there to analyze the show. I'm there to experience the show. In the same way you go to experience the show. So you come in, you sit down and go, okay, so where are you going to take me? What journey are you taking me on? What's this about? Where are we going? And you open yourself to that. I don't make notes during a show. Because for two reasons. First of all, if an audience, if you're in a small theatre and the audience is a small audience, the actors can see you. Because as soon as you see my pen move, that can be distracting for an actor. But more importantly, as a critic, if you're doing this with a pen... You're not doing this to the stage. You're not engaging with what's up there. You're already analysing it. You're doing it here. And I'm sorry, if you haven't got the mental faculty to be able to retain what you've seen and go away and think about it during the intermission at the end, then seriously, what are you doing? You're reporting. You're not actually criticising. Right. Not actually engaging. So for me, it's very important that when I look at a show, I will engage with it as it's happening. And then if there's somebody with me, I'll have a chat afterwards. If not, I get out. I'll just make a few quick notes. And then I'll mull it over on the drive home. So for me, I'm very actively engaged in that process as I'm watching a show and as I'm reflecting afterwards. So it's not too often where I will come later and go, you know, I've really been thinking about that because I've probably done that quite a lot for me personally. But, you know, I accept your point that there are shows that I will come later that are still bothering me. How would you advise someone? What kind of advice would you give to someone who is in that process, and especially since you work with kids, they want to create something for the stage and maybe do what you're doing. What kind of advice would you give them? Mm, That's a tricky one because what way I would advise somebody in Dublin and what way I would advise somebody in the US might be different. Oh, well, I'd love you to say something about that. I was over in New York there back in August for about a month. I was over there meeting with some people. But the infrastructures are very different. So where we would say, for example, have an arts council, we would have the National Youth Theatre, which supports youth theatre organisations. We would have um, various programmes and venues. So, for example, we have the ARC, which is dedicated to young work. We have other venues which would be very happy to come in and give you use of the venue you on certain times and certain days free of charge to to work with you know maybe disadvantaged youth those structures aren't available in the u.s to my knowledge no i think you're right so you couldn't say why don't you go apply for this grant or why don't you talk to that company there because space is at a premium um, and while there's a lot of philanthropy in the state sometimes needing you know a venue to give you you know you can have it from 10 o'clock to one o'clock every thursday for the next five weeks negotiating those kind of things would be a lot more difficult there i suspect than it would be in Dublin. so i would be reluctant 
to sort of say, hey guys, here's how you need to go about doing it. You know what Beckett says, you know, fail, fail again, fail better. And I think sometimes the notion of failure frightens some theatre makers in America. You know, particularly when it comes to young people, it's okay for them to fail. It's okay for it not to work out. But you go back and you pick up and regroup and say, well, what did we do? How can we make it better? And you, know, you, move, you keep moving on. And it's a constant process of perfecting. But where you feel I've got to get it perfect straight away, that can be an issue. So I would, I would suggest that if it was a case where you're working with young people, let them just have fun. Let them find their voice. Let them express themselves. It's like, you know, Emerson talks about the poet about this stuttering and stammering to get your voice out. Then let them stutter. Let them stammer to rage or delight or ecstasy just brings it out of them. And then you know you have something. And that comes from you listening to them, not them listening to you. I feel like you just tore that page out of the book I've been reading all my teaching <laughs> life. <laughs> And I find that when I work with adults in community theater, I run into that thing you were talking about, about that I'm afraid to try this because I don't want to look silly or embarrass myself. That fear is so prevalent, you know, that there's, it's not even a, a lack of ambition sometimes with, with young kids. It's a fear of ambition. And it's not just a fear of failure, it's a fear of success. Yes. Yes. Particularly when you work with people from backgrounds where they've been constantly told they're a failure, but they've been constantly told you're not good enough. You couldn't hack it in school. You've got an addiction issue. You know, your family are this, that, and the other. When they've heard that message, the idea that I might actually succeed and prove that all wrong is scary because it may be a terrible identity, but it's an identity. Yeah, the other is uncharted territory. We always found that the two to three weeks coming up before performances were the hardest. They knew what to do, but they were self-sabotaging all the way. And kids will do this, because if I don't have to do it, then I didn't fail. And if I didn't fail, I might have succeeded. But for us, we would, you know, beg, borrow, steal, cajole, threaten, whatever we needed to do. But we would get there. And once they do, and once they have that moment of achievement, on their terms, they've done it does like a trickle down happens and their DNA gets rewritten because no one can ever say to them you can't do it because they can go yeah I kind of can as a matter of fact I did I love that I would love to be able to meet you again in person sometime you've been just such a joy to talk to today absolutely I kind of you know I didn't feel the time going in it's been an absolute pleasure and yeah I mean would love to talk to you again sometime and if you're ever over this way please pop in I absolutely will thank you so much you've just been so gracious seriously I look forward to chatting again sometime soon great thank you Chris it's time now for concise advice from the interview I have five bits of advice from critic and playwright Chris O'Rourke Number five, be honest in your criticism. As long as there's no vindictiveness, you can share what you see. Number four, when working with young people, do work that is relevant to their lives. Number three, it's important to tell stories of people whose voices aren't ordinarily heard. Number two, if you're working with young people, let them have fun, find their voices, and express themselves. And the number one piece of advice from Unknown Theatre's Chris O'Rourke in Ireland? Respect your audience by keeping them engaged and entertained. That's it for concise advice from the interview. Check out the blog, sallypal.com, for articles and podcast episodes. Thank you for following, sharing, 
reading, subscribing, reviewing, joining, and thank you for listening. Now, I have one bit of wisdom from my husband, George, the coolest guy on the planet. George, what's your wisdom for today? Life isn't about finding yourself. Life is about creating yourself. That's from George Bernard Shaw. Excellent advice indeed. If you're downloading and listening on your drive to work or sharing the Sally Pal brand like my sister does, let me know you're out there. Shared storytelling is the most important thing we do as a culture. That's why I encourage you to share your stories, because you're the only one with your particular point of view. And Sally Pal is here with resources, encouragement, and a growing community of storytellers. All the stories ever expressed once lived only in someone's imagination. Now, respect your audience. If it weren't for Facebook, I'd have no friends at all. I'd be held to figure. Yeah. Some weird questions in my brain. I'm here to help. All her life. <laughs> um, do, do, do. Pretty damn weird. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for following, and thank you for leg lifts. And now it's time for Emily's weird question of the podcast. Hey, Emily, what weird question do you have for us today? How would it feel to eat a Christmas tree? (laughs) Find their voices. Joins me from Dublin, Ireland. Dublin. It's not Dublin. It's Dublin. Don't laugh. I know how to say this. On this episode. Hey, George. My dog is snoring. I get his reviews into my eel. I think I gotta stop thinking about what I just said. That makes no sense. What have I written? That's it.